The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. All right. Today we are going to look at one of the most significant themes in the Book of the Twelve. Some have called this the theme that ties everything in the Twelve Minor Prophets together. It is the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord is something that was anticipated all the way back into the Garden of Eden, most likely. Um, Most translations render God's presence in the Garden of Eden as He shows up and they walk with Him in the cool of the day. Very literally, though, it's the spirit of the day or the wind of the day. And that's how God shows up. He shows up in a windy storm all throughout the Bible when God shows up in manifesting His presence. Think about Mount Sinai. When God comes into space and time, things change. Darkness looms, clouds roll in, the earth shakes, people hear thunderous crashing noises. And on that first day, when he showed up in the garden, it was the day of judgment for Adam and Eve. Israel approaches Mount Sinai, and they're given the law that would have a ministry of condemnation. It's very possible that all the darkness, all the gloom, it even says in Exodus 20, verse 18, they saw the thunder. That's a very weird description. It was just tangible, palpable. They could feel it. They could see it when God showed up. And in God's revealed will, He said, I have come to test you in order that you might fear me so that you would not sin. That's why God, from His revealed will, showed up at Mount Sinai, giving the Ten Commandments to them, so that fear might be created so that they would not sin. But in God's overarching sovereign will, the law that He gave did not include Him giving them true eyes to see, true ears to hear. And so the law became, have a, bore a ministry of condemnation, and the thunder and the, the crashing and the darkness it, it supplies this ominous sense around the Old Covenant law. As if anticipating that it would bear a ministry of death. When we get into the prophets, the day of the Lord is depicted with that same ominous, dark descriptions as the day of judgment that would come on Jerusalem and on all humanity. It's hard when we read through the prophets about the day of the Lord to know what, is exactly, what exactly is he talking about? Because sometimes the day seems to be right now, like, like right on the other side of the hill, Babylon is encroaching. You think you're secure? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, all is well. And I tell you, judgment is on its way now. And then in other depictions, the day of the Lord is bigger. It's bigger than just Israel, What God, God's judgment there. It... it anticipates this judgment that he will bring on a global scale, comparable to what he did at the flood, but now not with water, but with fire. And so the lines become blurry from an Old Testament perspective. Every intrusion of God's future judgment day into the present is depicted and at times called the day of the Lord. 
So when God sends Babylon on Jerusalem, and the temple falls and the city goes to rubble, and most of the population are annihilated, that's called the day of the Lord. The image is of a warrior who comes in battle and in a single day is able to wipe out all of his enemies. But also with that, in a single day, it is able to intrude into space and time and do away with all evil, righting all wrongs and establishing right order in the universe once again. A single day. The day of the Lord is, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, it is the climactical Sabbath rest of God. Everything is working to climax into the seventh day. But every reader of the Bible, by the time it becomes Bible, they're already living in a world where the seventh day has been warped and twisted. God's rest in the seventh day is His sovereign rest, where He is seated on the throne and everything that He has created is good with God, and He is good with it. It is all right in God's world. Everything is at peace, surrendered to the great king over all things. But what the fall does is not disclose God's sovereignty, but all the world is now in chaos, not delighting in God's sovereignty. And so God begins a work. All the rest of Scripture is about God working once again to bring about a new creation wherein He will be seated on the throne once again, and all the world on His great day, the seventh day of rest and peace, will be established once again on a global scale. And what Jesus does, well, before I jump to Jesus, let's start with Israel. Israel's covenant sign is the Sabbath. For the flood, the sign was the rainbow. For the Abrahamic covenant, the sign was circumcision. For Israel as a nation, uh, uh, through the covenant made through Moses, the covenant sign was the Sabbath. And so they would have six days and then the seventh. They lived in order to see a culmination in the Sabbath day. It characterized Israel's mission. Israel was not placed in the world for themselves. They were placed in the world for the benefit of the rest of the world. Through Israel, the world would be blessed. That is, through Israel, they're carrying the six plus one pattern. Six plus one pattern. Every single week, their very structure of this week is to remind them of their mission. The goal is to see Sabbath rest realized on a worldwide scale. To see the day of the Lord brought where no more strife, no more animosity, no more serpent-like hostility would be seen, but rather through Israel... God's sovereignty, which was realized in heaven, would be brought to earth. The Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come on earth like it is in heaven. We're praying that the day of the Lord would be realized. That the Sabbath would, be, would go global in space and time so that we can see it. And the day of the Lord is the day when God promises to intrude, overcoming all enemies, and establishing right order again for all. But it comes in pictures. So we see little pictures of the day of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. Uh, When God judges Israel, like I said, uh, Samaria falls, it's depicted in day of the Lord imagery. Clouds, darkness, trumpet. Yahweh the warrior is coming in. 
But his agent in that moment was Assyria. And then God turns the tables and he uses Day of the Lord imagery actually against Assyria and says, I'm going to bring the Day of the Lord on you. And then the same thing happens with Babylon. Babylon comes and judges Jerusalem. It's the Day of the Lord depicted for them. And then God turns the tables, and in other oracles, he depicts in the same exact way, the day of the Lord will be brought on Babylon. And ultimately, Babylon becomes the picture, Babylon the Great in the book of Revelation. It's the ultimate depiction of all evil. That God will, in the ultimate day of the Lord, that we're still anticipating, come and wipe out all evil. The dragon himself will be slain completely, thrown into the pit of the fire forever, And Sabbath rest, consummate peace, no more tension, no more strife, no more battle with sin, no more struggle with cancer. It will all be done away with. And the day of the Lord will be forever. Now, the glory of Christ's coming is that that future judgment day has already been initiated, inaugurated for you and I. That in some ways, we are already living in the day. Come unto me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right now, this moment, finding your heart satisfied, finding your joy realized in me to carry you through the day of the Lord, darkness at the cross, Pentecost, The presence of God returning to His temple, the church. These were all anticipations of the day of the Lord. And they've already been inaugurated in some ways. But then in another sense, we have to say, no, don't think that the day of the Lord has come. This isn't all that we have. We're still anticipating more. A climactical, culminating day of the Lord when He will come, riding His white horse. All evil will be put down. And he will capture his bride. Or, as my friend summarizes the message of all the scripture, this is his one single summary. I think I've said this before. Kill the dragon, get the girl. That's what the Bible's about. Get the bride, slay the dragon, all is well. Day of the Lord. So, the book of the twelve. Sin, judgment, restoration. You'll see the day of the, of the Lord theme just carries its way all the way through. And there is this inner tension in the book, the book of the twelve, between what's going to happen at the day of the Lord. If you're not on God's side, believe me, you might think all is well, and it's not well. I preached at a church up in north of Forest Lake. Some of you may have been there before. On the back wall, did I say this before? On the back wall, there's like a 12-foot banner. Prepare to meet your God. It's painted on the wall. It's not even like a banner that you're hanging. And that is Amos 4.12, one of the most scary texts in all of Scripture. And I'm just like, what pastor approved that? I mean, what did he think about his people, right? Prepare to meet your God. You think that the day of the Lord is light? I tell you, the day of the Lord is darkness. That's what, that's what Amos declares. And it's just scary to the core. 
So, go out and enjoy your day, you know? <laughs> so, let's, let's overview this theme. It's weighty. It's a weighty theme. It's one of the elements that might cause us to say, I don't know if I want to go through the 12 minor prophets this year. Um, because we feel it. Darkness and gloom lingers over the day of the Lord. But believe me, in Scripture, the only way salvation comes to us is through judgment. And in light of the cross, we can celebrate the day of the Lord and then recognize that we are no longer in darkness, we're awake. Those who are asleep, to them the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Unexpected. But Paul says, you don't have to be afraid, because we are no longer asleep. The Lord has awakened us, and now we are living as if in the light. And when He comes, we will see Him, and all those who see Him will be able to find refuge in Him. As we go through these torment judgment texts, and they're contrasted with the life that flows out of it, put Jesus right in the middle of the judgment. He is the one who bears the day of the Lord in His body. The wrath of God is poured out on Him on our behalf if we are in Christ, trusting Him for the forgiveness of our sins and the fulfillment of all of His promises, even eternal life. So let's walk through these. Day of the Lord. Characteristics of the day. Number one, it's a day of war. A day of war and a day of mourning. The Lord utters His voice before His army. So he's at the front of this army who is coming to make war, war that's been testified to all the way back since the Garden of Eden when God told the serpent, there will be hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. That tension between an offspring of the woman, a deliverer who would cast a a skull-crushing blow against the serpent, even though he himself would be wounded on the heel. That, That inner animosity will be brought down, and that's what we're seeing here. This God hostility that grew out of the garden will ultimately be brought to an end. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? That's the question we should ask when when we're reading the prophets. Who can endure the day of the Lord? People out around this church, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, need to hear it, need to feel it. Who can endure the day of the Lord? Oh, the mercy of God, when He doesn't show up and judge our sin right away, like I said last week, we too often count it as, He doesn't care, He doesn't really see, I can get away with stuff, rather than viewing it as extended mercy, opportunity to repent. But know that the day of the Lord will come. Who can endure it? Joel answers it for us. Who can endure the day of the Lord? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord. Why? Because He is gracious and compassionate. It's a day associated with the outpouring of the Spirit. So this is in the same book. On the one hand, it's the day of darkness and mourning when God shows up with His armies to wipe out His enemies and He is effective 100%. But it's also this day. 
It shall come to pass afterward, once the judgment is wrought, salvation will be secured. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. No prejudice. All flesh. No sexual distinction. Men and women. The Spirit of God resting upon them. This is day of the Lord imagery. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. That's how the day of the Lord is depicted. For those who are experiencing God's judgment, it's like their lights go out. Their connection with creation is, it's not light overcoming darkness, it's going in reverse. You're going back into darkness. It's decreation language. That's how the day of the Lord is portrayed. You're moving from an age of light into an age of darkness. That's what God's doing to you. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Before it comes, that's what you'll experience. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now who knows where that passage is quoted? Romans 10, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's there. Where else is it? Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. We'll get there in a second. And Peter says, this, what you're seeing right now, is exactly what Joel was talking about, the day of the Lord inaugurated. Which means judgment must have been paid for because now the Spirit is being poured out afterward. A day of darkness, not light. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Oh, I want God to come. I can't wait till He comes. And yet inside, you're hiding all these secret sins. You're celebrating outwardly. I love the Lord. I look to Him. I'm eager for His appearing. And yet, you're not treasuring the Lord. Instead, you're living in sin. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. I'm getting away. He's behind me. Bam! Or one who went into the house and leaned his hands against a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom and not brightness in it, with no brightness in it? It's a day, so that's, that's Amos. The day of the Lord is darkness, but this is also the day. This is also part of what the old, old covenant saints were anticipating. In that day, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Behold, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Do you get that? So there's a harvest coming up, and the season keeps going, and they've been harvesting and harvesting, but now it's time to plow again, to plant new seed. And the harvest is so bountiful, they haven't even, I mean, the plowman is catching up. You've got to get this out of the ground, because I've got to replant. That's how bountiful it is. It's, it's new creation. It's, it's Garden of Eden bounty that's overflowing. That's what's going to overflow at the day of the Lord. And the booth of David 
Remember the promises given to David in 2 Samuel 7 that his throne would never end? Well, for those living in exile, they have no king, there is no throne, and God says that that house, that tent of David is going to be restored at the day of the Lord. That ultimate David will rise to the throne. So here's Zephaniah. It's a day of storm, darkness, and devastation. Zephaniah is one of the clearest, most thoroughgoing, scary depictions of the day of the Lord in all the Bible. It just goes on and on and on. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. It's a day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord their God. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on that day, the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. The day of the Lord. Do not think that judgment will not come. Now, a few images that should sound familiar if you're familiar with New Testament. Clouds, trumpet. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with Him where? In the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Day of the Lord, trumpet, clouds. That's how Christ will return. It's when He will return. Zephaniah, it's not only a day of judgment. Yes, it is. But it's also the very day on the other side of judgment where God will initiate and bring about new creation and with that salvation on a global scale. Look at how it's worded. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, the day, That's the day of the Lord. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. Wait for me. I think this is a wait of be patient. Not a wait, I'm I'm almost there to judge you, you just wait, kid, I'm almost home. Spank, spank. It's not that spanking. This is a weight of, you think it's taking a long time for me to come? Keep seeking the Lord. Keep trusting in the Lord. A patient pursuit of God. Why? Because I have set a day for judgment. But know this. There's another four right here. Four. Wait for me. For my decision is to gather nations to judge them. Wait for me. For at that time, in that day, I will change the speech of the peoples. It'll be transformed to a pure speech. This is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. But it's not a reversal taking us back to a single language. It's taking us back to a single profession. Notice what it says. At that time I will change the speech of the peoples. 
to a pure speech that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. So Joel includes the images of visions and dreams being brought out on all flesh. And Peter says, that's what you're seeing right now, the manifestation of the day of the Lord. So that all who call upon the Lord will be saved. That's Joel chapter 2. Picked up in Acts chapter 2. But what else happens in Acts chapter 2? Tongues. Speaking in tongues and people calling upon the name of the Lord. That's Zephaniah 3. It's the fulfillment of what was anticipated. And where does it go next? It says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, so that they can all call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Cush, that's Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. There will be a remnant as far as Ethiopia. Why does Acts chapter 7 tell us about the Ethiopian eunuch? In order to say this is being fulfilled. They could have gone anywhere else. This is the only text that points to Ethiopia, and it's the only example. It's the only example that Zephaniah gives of the restoration. Let me pick Cush. Why does he pick that? Because we learn in chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi. He's most likely a black Jew, an Ethiopian. He's very concerned about Ethiopia. And... He sees, he lays forth them as the ultimate example of restoration. And then Luke sees it and he picks it up and he puts the Ethiopian eunuch right in the story. I can't stop without telling you about the fulfillment. So it's a day of judgment, but not only that, it's the day of salvation, the day of the Lord. It's a day of our joy in God. And then this is unbelievable, God's joy in us. This day, this day when everything will happen. So this is Zephaniah again. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. This is a vision. This is, this is how people should respond in the day of the Lord. This is what it's going to be like. And it, it portrays it as if it's already happened. Even though for Zephaniah's day, it hadn't happened yet. Rejoice. Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never fear evil. Now in John chapter 12, this text is echoed. In the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The King of Israel. Do not fear. Do not fear. He's gentle and rides on a donkey. The colt, the foal of a donkey. Remember that passage? Everyone notes that it cites Zechariah chapter 9. That's the text that mentions about the colt and the foal of the donkey. And so it's a fulfillment of that text. But in Zechariah 9 it says, Rejoice! Rejoice! The king of Israel comes to you, gentle, riding on a donkey. That's what it says in Zechariah, rejoice. But in John chapter 12, it says, fear not, 
the king comes to you. The king of Israel riding on a donkey. And this is the only text in the Old Testament where king of Israel, I think it's speaking here about Yahweh, but Jesus is Yahweh. Speaking here about Yahweh as Israel's king, this is the only text that includes king of Israel and fear not and daughter of Zion all together. And all of that's found in John 12. As if John is reading Zephaniah and saying, Jesus is the king. Don't fear. The day of the Lord has come and you can rejoice now if you're surrendered to him. It's a day of war, plunder, and earthquake. We go to Zechariah. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he, is, as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. This is day of the Lord. Cataclysmic judgment. Then, Zechariah also says this too is the day of the Lord, a unique day of God-exaltation, creational transformation, and pervasive holiness. Let's look at this text. So this is just a few verses later in Zechariah 14. Day of the Lord, judgment and battle and war and earthquake. Then it says, day of the Lord is also this. And there shall be a unique day, which is known only to the Lord. When will it happen? Only God knows. That's, that's how Zechariah is talking which is known only to the Lord, only known to Yahweh, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. That's exactly how Revelation 22 opens. It talks about the water flowing out from the temple of God, and yet there is no temple because God is the light and there's no night. The Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. This morning, Pastor Jason said, God is most glorified in us. He's most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. And then Pastor Jason said, don't think that we're giving God something that He doesn't already have. He's already very glorious, the most glorious of all beings in the universe. So when we say God is most glorified in us, we're not talking about God's working glory in this world. We're talking about when do we display the glory of God most in our lives? When we're satisfied in Him. When we're trusting in Him. When we're really believing that His way is best. That He is worth holding on to even when He takes away. Well, in this text it says, in that day, the Lord will be one. Yahweh, Yahweh. How, wait, how is it worded? Um, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. He is that. In this future day, He will be that. It doesn't mean that God has changed in any way. I think this means that all of a sudden the world will recognize Him for who He is. The supreme being. The supreme treasure. He will be one and His name will be one. We will revel in the fact that He is Yahweh, the causer of all things. And we will rejoice in it and give Him the proper worship that He deserves. It will happen on that day. 
the day of the Lord. And then it says, in that same day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of horses, holy to Yahweh, and the pots in the house of Yahweh shall be as the bulls before the altar. Yahweh's holiness will all of a sudden go forth in this day, and it'll permeate everything. Now remember Isaiah chapter 6. The seraphim are up in heaven, these glowing beings with multiple wings surrounding the throne, and what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. The earth is filled with the glory of God. This manifest display of His holiness abounds around us, but so many don't have eyes to see it. And therefore, they shape for themselves various other kinds of gods. In this day, God will be one, His name will be one, and His holiness will be recognized everywhere. The day of the Lord. And here's where the book of the Twelve ends. It's a day of complete burning for the wicked, but of joy. Joy for the righteous. Look at it. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant... Arrogance is about self-righteousness, about self-assertiveness, about self-reliance. It's about prayerlessness. It's about waking up and going through our day as if we don't need to be filled up. Arrogance. Arrogant. Evildoers. They'll become like stubble to the flame. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Nothing will be left. But for you, for you who fear God, not perfectly, but really, we rest in all that God is for us in His Messiah. We rest in that because we don't fear perfectly, but we do fear really. For those of you who fear God, not perfectly overnight, but progressively ever increasing over a lifetime. Jeremiah 32, I will make an everlasting covenant with you so that I will not turn from you, turn from doing good to you. I will put the fear of me in your hearts so that you will never turn from me. New covenant grace. To those who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. On the day, that's the day of the Lord. The enemy will be put under your feet. It reminds me here, anticipating Romans 16 where all of these enemies, all these wicked are bound up in Romans 16, and they're just named under their Lord, the serpent. In Romans 16 it says, in that day, the serpent will be put underneath the church's feet. Genesis 3.15 said, the serpent would be crushed under the feet of the Messiah. But now those who are bound up, identified with Jesus, trusting Him for the forgiveness of our sins, trusting Him for the fulfillment of all of God's promises, even eternal life, to them, 
they will overcome. And all the enemies of God will be put underneath our feet. But lest we think, allow our hearts to get too haughty there, we should tremble because we ourselves were enemies of God and have only received amazing mercy. We are no better than those who are going to be judged. The difference is simply we've recognized how needy we are. Therefore, I will boast in my weakness, because in my weakness, He is strong. Where does the New Testament go with all this Day of the Lord stuff? Malachi 4, 1-3. You see that up there. Now I'm going to put up there Malachi 4, 5, and 6. This is the very, I mean, in our English Bibles, these are the last words of our English Bible. But it's, it's not the last words of Jesus' Bible. This is only the end of the prophets in Jesus' Bible. And what this does is it opens up a door for, unbelief, for, for a turning of the tables. The entire feel of the Old Testament is going to change at this point. Right when we get to the end of Malachi, it's going to be like the beacon of light that has been dim but there in the prophets is all of a sudden going to glow amazingly big. The hope of the future David. The hope of the kingdom. The hope when sin will be overcome. The hope when the dragon will be slain and the bride will meet his groom. Her groom. Here it is. Malachi 4, 5 and 6. What does the New Testament do with Day of the Lord imagery? John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Day of the Lord. Look at how... Malachi ends, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. I will send. Malachi is the very last prophet ministering around 430 B.C. 430 years before Jesus comes, Malachi is declaring there's a prophet, Elijah, who's going to come. We've already heard about a prophet like Moses who was to come. Elijah, of all the prophets in the Old Testament, looks most like Moses. He does signs and wonders. He even goes to Mount Sinai, it tells us, and hears God speaking through a still, small voice or a thunderous, crashing voice, depending on how you translate it. Elijah is the prophet of all who reminds the Old Testament saints about Moses. He is the premier pointer to Moses. Live like Moses called us to live. But now what we're seeing is not only are we to expect a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 34, we're to expect a prophet Elijah, who will be the forerunner of the day of the Lord. Here's what it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, a new Elijah, not a resurrected Elijah, but a new Elijah who will be like him, a pointer to Moses, to the new Moses, the one who will trump the old covenant. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. The new Moses will be the mediator of a greater covenant, not bearing a ministry of condemnation, but a ministry of righteousness. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Before it comes, Elijah will show up. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so the prophets end. 
But then 400 years passes, all the law and the prophets stand. Keep listening to Moses. Keep listening to Moses all the way through until Elijah shows up. What then did you go out to see when you went to go look at John the Baptist, Jesus asks. Did you go out to see a prophet? Oh yes, I tell you, he's even more than a prophet. Behold, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's a quotation from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And it's pointing to the same reality of the coming Elijah. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So John the Baptist shows up and all of a sudden, there is an awakening 2,000 years ago. An awakening that the imminence of the day of the Lord is upon them. It's going to come right away. And what is John the Baptist talking about? I baptize you with water, but don't look at me. No, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I must decrease so that He might increase. I baptize you with water for repentance, but He who is coming after me is mightier than I. He whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with two things. The presence of God and fire. Now think back of those Day of the Lord images. Fire is how everything will be consumed. And the Holy Spirit is supposed to be poured out on all flesh. And John the Baptist is saying, there's one coming after me who is going to bring this kind of baptism. You're going to be consumed under the fires of God like you're the sacrifice. But He will do it for us. Jesus later will say, I have a baptism to undergo that none of you can follow me in. He will take the baptism of fire for us. And then in Him, we are dead. We experience the fire of God, but only in Jesus. And our old man is consumed. Our identity with Adam is burned up. The day of the Lord is undergone by Christ on our behalf. But not only that, He baptizes us also with the Holy Spirit. And there is this drenching, this saturation that comes as, the temp, as we become the tabernacling presence of God. New creation begins to happen. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand. He will clear His threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. So John clearly has in mind, Jesus is the one. But then we run into a problem. Here's John's problem. I know what I was expecting at the day of the Lord. I was expecting all hell to be crushed, all evil to be put down. Specifically, this is what he was expecting. Well, he was expecting prisoners to be set free. He was expecting the blind to see and the lame to walk. But there's a challenge. Jesus is here, and John's still in prison. So John questioned whether Jesus was the one because he didn't bring everything all at once. 
The day of the Lord. Aren't we looking for one day? A single day? Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Messiah, the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, go ask him this question. Are you the one who is to come or should we be looking for another? I've already pointed everybody to you, but you're not accomplishing everything that I expected in my timetable. Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. I mean, this is, this is amazing stuff. Every one of these things is bound up in Day of the Lord texts. Future, future latter days texts from the Old Testament. No one in all the Bible was ever able to heal a blind person. No one. We don't see it anywhere in the Old Testament. But the Messiah was supposed to be able to do that. When He comes, He will transform the eye and enable sight. He'll take the cripple and make them able to walk. Yes, it's happening. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. But notice, in His ministry, when we read the Gospels, we only know of three people that were ever raised to life. Three of them that Jesus healed. How many other people stayed in their graves? He refused to minister outside of Israel itself. That meant the majority of the world, the blind were not being healed. The deaf were not hearing. The lame were not walking. The global transformation that was expected at the day of the Lord was not happening. But Jesus said, don't doubt it. But then notice what he says at the end. So the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. He's talking to John who's sitting in prison. And I think what he's saying is, let me be a master of the timetable. And don't let the fact that you're still struggling in prison, don't let the fact that you're still battling cancer, that you've still got a sore foot, that you're still battling relationally with relatives, don't let that presence of unresolved tension cause you to take offense at my ministry. I am still working. Keep trusting me and wait for my timetable. I think that's what he's saying. So I'll get that hand in one second. Let me just read this. This is what Jesus opened his ministry with. This is what was on John the Baptist's mind. The scroll of the prophet, Jesus shows up in Nazareth. The scroll of the prophet of Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written. He goes to Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, and he reads from it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of the sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed. John the Baptist is supposed to be out of prison. That's what he's thinking. And then he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Period, quotation mark, he rolls up the scroll. He goes and sits down and everybody waits to hear what he has to say. And then he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
But what was so unexpected is that Jesus stopped where he did. What's the clause in Isaiah 61 that happens right after to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Anybody? To proclaim the day, the day. You've got a year of favor to proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God. And he didn't say that's what he was here for in his first round. But it will come. But I think that's where John is having his tension. In Jesus' timetable, the day of the Lord has been stretched out. For those who are in him, it's already been started, inaugurated, begun. We have already enjoyed life. We've called upon the name and we've been saved. But Ephesians chapter 1 says, In Christ we have every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.3, as we await Ephesians 1.13 and 14, the full inheritance. It's like the day of the Lord has been stretched out. Right now, the day of the Lord has in one breath, at least for us, been started. But for the majority of the world, it's still to come. The only reason it's been started for us is because the judgment that was anticipated in the day of the Lord has already been wrought by Jesus. And with that, through judgment comes salvation. But it isn't realized fully so that the writer to Hebrews can say, Jesus has already subjected everything under his feet, but to us who are living still in this world, it doesn't look like it. But today, already, the scripture is fulfilled. It's already fulfilled. In Christ, every enemy is already put down. Every sickness is already overcome. Every sin has already been slain. Every single one. And so we seek to conquer sin that has already been pardoned. We don't work in order to get it pardoned. The power of the gospel is needed. The power of good news. Good news. The price has been paid. The dragon has been slain. And we have to live in that mindset of a people who are living in light of the future and in light of the past as we await for the ultimate day of the Lord, the climax when it will be completely finished for everyone. Now let me just pause here. The day, good, two good questions. So the, the first question was, um, what sicknesses were healed in the Old Testament? And I've never done a catalog. All I know is that the blindness one, many scholars have noted that that was the one that is unique in the New Testament that was never done in the Old. So I don't... I just haven't done much with Old Testament miracles. Um, the second question was, has the day of vengeance come? Not for a people who are still rebellious against God. But if you have found refuge in the Son, it's only because He's already bore the sacrifice. He's already taken the vengeance of God on us. So in one breath... Um, Paul can say in Romans 12, 
Show good to others rather than evil. Respond to evil with good because vengeance is mine, I will repay. Our fuel, what fuels us, what motivates us to love those who are hurting us is that we are trusting in the promise of God that the day of the Lord will ultimately come against them. He is a God of vengeance who will repay. So in that sense, for the evil in this world that we're still seeing, that's still awaiting fire to consume it. But for us who are in Jesus, He has already received the wrath of God on our behalf. So that when the wrath comes at the end of time, it will not be wrath to us anymore. It will will just not be placed on us. So there's still a day of reckoning that's coming. But on that day, the day of wrath will have already passed because it intruded, the future intruded into the past 2,000 years ago and was placed on Jesus. Even the day of vengeance takes on two parts. That's right, an initial and that is bound up in Jesus. But what he's doing here, proclaiming good news, he's saying, I'm here to proclaim to you before judgment day comes. The king is on his way, and when he shows up, patience will be over, mercy will be finished. It'll just be judgment day. So surrender today. And so in surrendering to him, in trusting people's lives to this coming king, they are entering into the world of refuge. But the question is always there, how can God justly bestow refuge on a sin- people who were once sinners? Because his wrath has to be worked out, and that's where the future, that's where the, the day of vengeance is brought into two portions, and it intrudes, his vengeance is brought on Christ at the cross. But our responsibility is to be proclaiming the terms of peace. The only way to quench the fires of God's wrath is to surrender to Christ. Otherwise, the wrath will come. So here's the cross. How's it depicted? An image of day of the Lord. It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I think that's supposed to bring allusions to, to, to take us back into the Old Testament and be thinking about the day of the Lord imagery. Then we get Peter, who makes it absolutely explicit. This Pentecost thing with flames on our head, baptism in the Holy Spirit, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he cites Joel right in the a day of the Lord text. In the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on the male servants and the female servants in those days I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and the magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, saved from the future day of wrath, because they've already experienced the blessing of God there. And then it, trying to understand where does the sun 
being turned to darkness, the moon to blood, um, showing wonders in the heavens above and in the signs of the earth below before the day of the Lord comes. I think that that depiction there is, go, I, I think it's going back in time in Peter's mind that we're living in the day of the Lord and that the darkness that was experienced at the cross was the darkness that was expected before the judgment fell. But that's not as far as the New Testament goes. The New Testament goes further. God will come. And then it uses language of the day of the Lord straight out of the prophets. He will come like a thief in the night. For you yourselves, he'll come like a thief only to those who are not awake. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, everything's well, there's peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness that you would need to fear this day. No, you don't need to fear. You're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you're children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. All of that imagery, thief. They will leap upon the city, they'll run upon the walls, they'll enter through the windows like a thief. That's Joel chapter 1, or Joel chapter 2. This is what the day of the Lord is like. It's going to come like a thief against you. Asleep in spiritual drunkenness. Joel 1, awake, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. They're like people who are asleep, and all of a sudden the day of the Lord comes, and he's saying, before it gets here, wake up. And Paul says, we're awake. We've been shaken out of our stupor. And God's given us eyes to see Him as beautiful. Given us eyes to see the sun as our only refuge. God will come with a roar, with fire. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up. Consider it just to repay. God considers it just to replay with a fiction. You... Uh, those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. Paul takes the extra step. It's not just Yahweh who's going to show up. It's Jesus who's going to show up. He's the one who's going to come in the clouds. He's the one who's bringing the fire. A lion's roar. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. The roaring image, the lion image, is straight out of the minor prophets. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, He is the one who is conquered. Destruction by fire that was mentioned in those New Testament texts. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. God will come in the clouds. Yes, He will. And that's how we're to anticipate. When we hear the Lord will come down from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with Him in the clouds, we're to be picturing the day of the Lord. And that's a hopeful day for those who are awake. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, says Joel. That's what we're expecting. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation. Darkness, gloom, day of clouds, thick darkness. So here's how the book of Hebrews 
thinks about such things. And here's where we close today. Since you see the day drawing near, because the day is drawing near, church, let us. Let us draw near with a true heart. Draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We approach God through His Son. That's what we got in the previous verses there in Hebrews. Through Jesus, whose blood stood bearing It was shed so that ours wouldn't have to be. So we draw near in confidence, full assurance of faith, trusting every promise is yes, trusting that He is indeed for us, even if it doesn't feel like it. Not thinking about how good we are, thinking about who good Jesus was. We trust with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. That's how we move ahead. We move ahead in light of what has already been accomplished for us. We draw near to God. Let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering, because God is faithful. I just need to preach to myself so much, because... I'm in a weird season, I, in, the, in my 40s, I think, beginning, it, it, that's, it started like in my late 30s, late 39, and now I'm in almost 41, and it's just these funny doubts keep coming to my mind, and I just have to arm myself with the Word of God, trusting, hoping in what is true, and in a God who is faithful. Believing that the day of the Lord is real and that Christ did something 2,000 years ago for me. And because of that, my future is settled. And we consider how we can stir one another on to love and good works. Not neglecting meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. Don't give up. Keep trusting. Keep hoping. We have one Savior who alone can help. We have one Savior who alone can satisfy. Don't go anywhere else. Keep looking to Him. Encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for Your faithfulness, that You are trustworthy, that when You speak, it will come to pass. And You have proven this through the resurrection of Your Son. We rest in Him. Heighten our hope. Overcome our doubt, our despondency, our despair. Help us trust You with our future, You with our conversations, You with our health. You with our provision. Help us believe and not doubt. For the glory of Christ. For our good, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom 
and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.